Would you take your Bibles in hand with me and turn to the book of Joshua this evening? We'll be in Joshua chapter 4. Joshua chapter 4. And I'm going to read the chapter in its entirety as it is relevant to our uh, time in the Word this evening. But before I do with God's Word open, let's pray. God in heaven, we come again before your throne, humble and needy, poor and unable to understand these things apart from your spirit, for they are spiritually discerned. And so we ask this evening, God, that you would be gracious to us, that you would be kind to show us your son, show us your glory, show us how we ought to know you and how we ought to live for you in this world. Open your word to us, Lord, that we might behold wonderful things in it and open us to your word that we might be forever changed by it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, before I read Joshua chapter 4, let me give a little context. We're jumping into the middle of, of a lengthy scene Uh, If you're familiar with Joshua, uh, the beginning of the historical books of the Old Testament were out of the Pentateuch, the giving of the law, the wilderness wanderings, the people of Israel making their way from Egypt, uh, a whopping 11 days journey that took them 40 years to get to the western shore, or excuse me, the eastern shore of the Jordan River, opposite of Jericho. And so as the Israelites are there, Moses has died. Uh, And God commands Joshua to get up and lead the people across the Jordan. And in chapter 3 of Joshua, as is normally the case coming before chapter 4, Israel crosses the Jordan River to enter the Promised Land. Now, the last 40 years have been spent wandering in the wilderness because of the sins of the people of Israel against God. An entire generation of Israelites has died except for Joshua and Caleb. All of them are gone. They've fallen in the wilderness because of the rebellion against God the last time they attempted to enter the promised land, 40 years earlier, from Kadesh Barnea. And as they prepare to enter the promised land, uh, Moses, back in Deuteronomy chapter 29, reminded them of the amazing provision that God had made for them during their 40 years of wandering. He tells them that their clothes have not worn out and their sandals have not rotted off their feet after 40 years of walking. Now, we won't get there, but for those of you who are interested in these sort of anecdotal connections, this is the exact ploy that the Gibeonites used in order to gain favor and covenant relationship with Israel. They say, look how far we've come. Our sandals are worn out and our clothes are full of holes. The exact thing that God did to protect his people. That's not not to be missed. But Moses continues to remind the people that God had provided water from rocks so that his people would not perish. God had provided food from heaven so they would not starve. And on top of it all, it's worth noting that the Israelites are about to lay hold of a 400-year-old promise that God had made to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 17 that his descendants, after being enslaved by a foreign nation, would be freed to come back to this land and lay hold of it as an eternal possession. The Israelites, in other words, have been waiting for this moment for 440 years. That's a long time. They've been waiting for this, the eager anticipation. Think about you young kids. It's only September 11th, but Christmas feels like it's right around the corner. But you know, as soon as I mention Christmas, 
And as soon as you start thinking about the gifts that you want and what might be waiting for you under the tree, those days are going to get longer and longer, aren't they? It's going to feel like it's taking forever to get to Christmas, right? So I'm sorry, you know, I shouldn't have done that. You guys are already probably upset with me, but a long wait to Christmas. Now imagine Christmas Eve, right? You guys remember Christmas Eve last year? You're getting ready to go to bed. And you know, when I wake up tomorrow morning, that pile right there, the ones with all those tags on it with my name, I'm going to get to open those tomorrow morning. That sort of excitement times a million is what the Israelites are experiencing right now. They are waiting for the promise to be fulfilled. They're on the cusp. Even Joseph, by the way, prior to his death in Genesis chapter 50, I know Pastor Webb will deal with this in a few weeks' time when he gets there, was so confident that God would fulfill his promise to his forefather Abraham that he made his children and grandchildren commit to bringing his bones up out of Egypt with them when they left to come to the promised land. So here on the eastern shore of the Jordan River across from Jericho is a company of Israelites, the second generation of wilderness wanderers, and the bones of Joseph. Because they had said they would bring them him with them. So this passage comes on the heels of a lot of promises and fulfillment. A lot of provision by God for the people of God from his mighty hand. Don't miss that. The Israelites didn't find water because one of them had a divining rod. The Israelites didn't find water because they were excellent at digging deep holes. They found water because God brought it forth out of rocks. Okay. They didn't find food because they happened to be sheep herders, which is what they told Pharaoh 400 years earlier when they went into Israel. They found food because God rained it down from heaven to provide for his people, not unlike the bread of heaven that came down for us and for our lives. He had sustained them. He had carried them on eagle's wings, he says. He had brought them to this point. He had even stopped up the waters of the River Jordan in chapter 3 so that they could lay hold of the promise. He removed every obstacle from his people's path that they might be where he said that he would lead them. And that is the background to chapter 4. Now, this is the reading of God's word. Please pay heed to how you hear it. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua t called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. Verse 8. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up the twelve stones out of the midst of the Jordan according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord had told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood. And they are there to this day. For the priests bearing the Ark stood in the midst of the Jordan till everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. And the people passed over in haste 
And when all the people had finished passing over the ark of the Lord and the priests passed over before the people, the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over, armed before the people of Israel, as Moses had told them, about 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him, just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. And the Lord said to Joshua, Command the priests bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, Come up out of the Jordan. And when the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. The people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. We are by nature forgetful people. There is a, a, a hidden fear in the heart of every man that he will be asked publicly, When's your anniversary? We need reminders on our calendars to tell us of special dates and occasions, even lunches. I eat lunch at least once a day, and I still need reminders on my phone to tell me to go eat lunch when I have an appointment with somebody. Birthdays, phone numbers, the order of service, which we go through every week, week after week, and we still need it printed to remind us of what part comes next so that way we don't have two people standing here trying to own the microphone at the same time. We're forgetful people. All of us are. And God knows that that we are forgetful, which is why his word is filled from cover to cover with imperatives to remember, to remember, to remember, to recall to our minds and tell our children all of the marvelous works of God. We sing songs in order to help us learn to remember who God is and what he has done. So many of the psalms were written as songs of remembrance. I'll just list several of them. Psalm 78, Psalm 105, Psalm 106, Psalm 135, and more say explicitly that these are written for remembering what God has done. Recall to your mind the mighty works of God. He wants us to know and remember who he is and what duty he requires of us, as our shorter catechism question three tells us. In today's passage, we read of a time in Israel's history where they built memorials, a memorial out of stones in order that they would never forget what God had done for them. They needed to be reminded and future generations needed to be reminded of who God was and what he had done. Now, the purpose of this was more than merely an occasion for remembrance. It wasn't, in fact, an anniversary marker. 
It wasn't so that way in the future children could say, what do these stones mean? And they would say, on the 10th day of the month, we crossed over. Rather, it was to say, God has done this for us. Rather than being simply a set of stones for a memorial, it was an arrow pointing up to God to remind the people what he had done for them. It was to give them confidence going forward, all the way to future generations. As they walked by this place and saw that pile of rocks, rocks big enough that each man had to carry them on his shoulder. Don't miss that. A large pile of stones to memorialize what God had done for remembrance, for confidence. The Israelites were to look at them and know that God had stopped up the Jordan. Stopped up the Jordan. And back in chapter 3, it tells us in three places that this was during flood season. Now, flood season at the river is much different than dry season at the river. This river being stopped up, completely stopped up, was to give the second generation of Israelite wanderers Evidence of God's mighty power the same way their parents had at the Red Sea, which all of these folks were either little babies or not even born yet. And so they're being given the opportunity to see just how powerful this God is. Because guess what he's about to tell them to do in a couple chapters? March around a city and blow trumpets. They need to be reminded that God is powerful, powerful enough to stop up a mighty raging river. And this is designed to keep them from fearing the next seemingly impossible task and rather to fear the Lord. So we, in the same way, need to look at the mighty works of our Lord and not forget what he has done for us. Recall these things to our children that they may know who God is and what he's done. This passage gives us three things about God's works that we're going to take a couple minutes to look at now uh, in large sections of this text. Verses 1 through 7 tell us that God's works are mighty and they're worth remembering. These are not piddly little uh, events that happen in the course of Israel's history. These are major, mighty, powerful works of God. And we should not be so quick to forget all the things that he has done for us. Joshua commands the people to build up this memorial of stones in order to remember what God had done. He tells them to go out into the middle of the river. The only way that they could have gone out into the middle of the river to gather these stones is if the waters were being stopped up and the, and the river was dry for them. And that's what they did. They walked out to gather these stones and bring them out. You know, stones, if you walk out in the woods and find a pile of rocks, they're usually rough and sharp, and you certainly don't want to fall down on them because of the, uh, the texture of them, because they're rough rocks, and the only thing wearing them down is rain. But if you grab rocks out of a river, what do they look like? They're smooth all the way over because the water has broken down the rough edges and smoothed them out. And so if you were to just grab 12 rocks from the side of the river and make a pile, it would look like any pile of 12 rocks. But rather, Joshua sends them to the middle of the river so in the future their children will see smooth stones that could only have come from the middle of the river in order to be reminded that this place really did dry up for us when we crossed over. The memorial is designed so the people would not forget what God had done. Not what they had done, but what God had done. God is the emphasis of this text. You may not notice this at first glance, but between chapters 3 and 4, the phrase, the ark of the Lord, is used 16 times in this short little account of crossing the Jordan River. Why is that significant? The ark of the covenant was representative of God's presence with his people. It was the footstool of his throne. 
It was where he encamped and where he went with his people. And when they erected the tent, the tabernacle for him to dwell in, then the glory cloud would come and fill it. But in the meantime, as they passed from place to place and carried the Ark of the Covenant, God went with them in that place. And it's the Ark that leads them. It's the Ark that goes first. It's the Ark that causes the water to be stopped up. It's the faithfulness of the priest carrying the Ark and following in obedience that brings God's blessing and power to bear on their situation. God is the emphasis of this text. He is, by his presence, like he does in all situations in our lives, ordaining and superintending and orchestrating all things according to the counsel of his will. The people didn't devise some fantastic uh, engineering plan in order to cross the river. They didn't set up a series of rope bridges. They didn't fell trees in order to stop it up like a dam of, uh, that as beavers would do. Rather, God himself stopped it when they put their feet in the water. The same is true for us in our lives. If we are to have any success in this life, it must come by following God and trusting his presence rather than trying to lead him in the direction that we would go. And this is hard for us because like the Israelites in the wilderness, we are foolish and prideful and we want what we want. But God has laid out a plan for us and his word recounts, tells us what he designed us as Christians to live like. What is God's will for your life, Paul asks, your sanctification and so forth. What has God done? Of course, he stopped up the Jordan River that they might cross it in order to lay hold of the promises he had made to their forefathers. But he had done so much more. As we already said, manna from heaven, water from the rock. He gave them his law at Mount Sinai. He, he refrained from destroying them for their idolatry at Mount Sinai. And he had parted the Red Sea and delivered them out of the house of slavery and bondage in Egypt. But the Israelites forgot a lot, didn't they? Have you ever thought to yourself, oh, if I was alive back then, and I had seen that glory cloud on Mount Sinai and heard the thunder and seen Moses' glowing face and watched the Red Sea parted. Can you imagine the children of Israel walking through the Red Sea? I picture these walls of water and little kids running with their fingers in the edge of the water like they're like through jello. And all the fish are right there on the other side and all the fish on that side. are You can just see them because the water's lifted up and parted and you're walking through on dry ground. How amazing was that? I, wouldn't, I never would have rebelled against God. You, you don't know yourself very well if you think that that's true. Rather, they make it just a mere couple of days from that place and they start to complain. They complain that God has brought them out in the wilderness to die. Egypt, they say, was so great. God, they say, is so mean. Moses, they say, is a terrible leader. All throughout the books of Exodus and Numbers, the people of Israel grumble against God, having developed some sort of wilderness amnesia. But this is true in our lives too, isn't it? We go from high point to high point, and the valleys between are so low and dark that we can't even remember what the top was like. Desmond Alexander, an Old Testament scholar, says that when we grumble against God in our circumstances, we do three things. We misremember the past. Think about the Israelites. Oh, Egypt was great. You guys remember Egypt, how great it was? We got to eat bread and onions and stuff and sit. 
I mean, they totally forget that they were throwing their children in the, in the water to kill them or that they had to make bricks all day, every day without straw. They were enslaved people, but Egypt was so great. We misremember the past, and you and I do the same thing when we look back on our sinful lives before Christ and say, I wish I could still do that. Mm-hmm. We're misremembering the past and the enslaving power of sin. And then the second thing that grumbling does is it denies the present goodness of God. Oh, this manna is miserable. Not quite as miserable as death by starvation, but they grumbled that it was miserable. Oh, it tastes terrible, this manna from heaven. And you and I, we often fail to realize and accept God's good blessing in the present when we grumble against him. We act as though every moment in our lives should be filled with miraculous, uh, awe-inspiring, Jordan River-like, Red Sea-like events. But the reality is, friends, don't you realize that the fact that your heart is beating right now and pumping blood through miles worth of a circulatory system in your body is itself a miracle? The fact that you can take breath in your lungs, that you have a brain that functions, that can hear my words, that sound waves are moving from me to your ears, and you're receiving the very word of God inscripturated in your minds, and you're able to understand it by the power of his spirit. Tell me that each moment is not a miracle, just as amazing as the Jordan River being stopped up. But we forget. We forget so easily and so quickly. So God says, remember Remember, remember what I've done. Every little thing. Build for yourself a pile of stones in life that when difficult times come, when Jericho is right around the corner, you might look back and say, look what God just did for me. Look what God just did for me. We have a very uh, special annual event coming up in November. Thanksgiving. What a wonderful time as families to start a tradition of building up stones of remembrance for all the things that God has done. It's one of my most uh, beloved holiday traditions as throughout the year we mark down and write down on little index cards things that God has done, great and small, and we keep them in a drawer in a buffet in our family room. And then on Thanksgiving we pull them out and pass them around so we can all read them with our unbelieving family members who come to visit us on Thanksgiving. What a wonderful testimony to God's goodness. The same testimony, by the way, look at verse 24. Excuse me, I want you to do this so that all the peoples of the earth may know the hand of the Lord is mighty and they may fear God. Your personal remembrance of God's good work is both for your sake and an evangelistic endeavor because it shows the people around you who it is that you serve and what great things he has done for you. It doesn't require us coming through a successful open heart surgery, for example, to point our finger to God. It simply means that we wake up in the morning alive and his mercies are new. And we ought to remember that every day. When we do, as we rightly remember God and his mighty works, we can be rooted in confidence and trust him in whatever circumstances come our way. As the song says, when trials come, we no longer fear because of God's past faithfulness. And to be clear... The parting of the Jordan was certainly amazing. By by saying that it's no more amazing than the fact that you can breathe and that your heart works, I don't mean to minimize the significance of an event like the parting of the Red Sea or the parting of the Jordan River. But all of these things, all of these amazing things, life and breath and everything, the parting of the Jordan, the parting of the Red Sea, they all pale in comparison to the greatest work that God has done for his people when he stopped up the sea of his own wrath and made dry ground on his son's body that we might walk through it. 
God has done far more marvelous works than we can comprehend. And the Bible is filled from cover to cover with stories of them in time and space. And yet one stands at the pinnacle, one stands at the climax of all of history, that God sent his son that he might part the sea of God's wrath so his children could walk through on dry ground. If there is nothing else in your life that seems worth celebrating tomorrow morning, remember God's mighty works. Remember who God is. How can we fail to remember his mighty work day by day in this great thing of salvation and in the small things he does as well? Now, if God is mighty and his works are as marvelous as all that, then certainly, certainly they are worth remembering. And certainly then, he is worth obeying, isn't he? Even when what he tells us to do may seem to go against what we would refer to as common sense. Look with me at verses, uh, the next section, verses 8 through 18. It says, uh, Joshua had told them, go into the middle of the Jordan and grab these stones. Now, I, 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 I want to believe the best about these priests at this time as they're carrying around this Ark of the Covenant on their shoulders, which, by the way, is a box made of wood covered in gold. So it's not like, you know, It's not like a light piece of material that's just sitting there on their shoulders. They're holding this giant heavy box filled with stone tablets with the law and manna and Aaron's budded staff and all those things. Standing there in the Jordan, hoping, praying that this will continue. Maybe they can see the water down there just kind of, you know, waiting to be released by God's mighty hand. And they're waiting for it and going, all right, guys, like, you know, come on, sweetheart, let's get across the river. And they're just waiting, and God says, no, 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 Joshua, send some guys back out there to get big stones. And they're like, oh, please send the biggest guys. I don't want, you know, you picture some little guy, like, trying to pick up a stone, and he needs help. And So they're waiting for the, the strong men to come gra- gather these stones. This seems to go against common sense. Go back into the dry river? I mean, I'd rather stay over here on the promised land side. But sure enough, they go. It says in verse 8, and the people of Israel did just as God commanded them. They go back out into the river and do exactly what God said, even when it doesn't make sense. And again, I refer your attention to chapter 6. In chapter 5, the commander of the Lord's army falls, or, uh, 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 appears to Joshua, and Joshua asks what he should do. And he tells him, what I want you to do is take the people of the city and walk around it in silence. You're going to fight the first set of Canaanite warriors by walking around their town in silence, in a circle, for six days. And then seven times on the seventh day. But bring trumpets on that day, so it's all good. I mean, we're tracking that this is not a sense-making plan. Like, I don't know if any of you guys are familiar with tactics and and so forth and, and combat strategies, but circle walking with trumpets is not anybody's TTP in the 21st century. Like, that's not how we do things, right? And so you guys know this. And they knew it too, and God was going to tell them, go do this thing. Why? Because he alone would receive glory for the defeat of Jericho. And they had just crossed the Jordan and knew the sort of thing that God could do. And because of what he's done... And how mighty he is. He's worth obeying. Even when those things seem strange to us. Right? Actually, let's not miss this. 
parents, forgive me uh, for bringing this to your attention or to the attention of your children. But in chapter 5, we discover that all the second generation Israelites had failed to be circumcised. And so they crossed the Jordan. They're sitting there in eyesight of their enemies. And they decide to have a circumcision party and wait for a couple days till they're all healed. You just imagine the last time, by the way, a, na- a group of people were circumcised and waiting to be healed. Two of Jacob's sons went in and killed them all. Remember that in Genesis? You guys are studying in Genesis in the mornings, right? And so uh, Levi and Simeon went in and killed all of the men there because of the, their treatment of their sister Dinah, right? So the last time a group of people decided to do a circumcision within eyesight of their enemies, they died for it. And now God's telling the Israelites, do that same thing. I will protect you. And they do because he's worth obeying. He's able to be obeyed because he's so mighty and so trustworthy, isn't he? Now, what has God asked you to do? It's, you know, it's easy to trust God when he wants you to have a fat bank account, work at a good job, maintain good health, and raise well-behaved children. It's easy. Easy to obey God in those times. It's much harder when he wants you to leave your job for future ministry, perhaps. To receive a cancer diagnosis and believe that he is still good and he does good for his children. It's harder to trust God when he asks you to raise children who will break your heart and walk away from the church for a season while you trust in the promise that their baptism means that his word will not return void and you believe beyond hope that they may come back to him. It's harder to trust God in those moments, isn't it? But God's works are mighty and he's worth obeying. He's worth obeying wholeheartedly and joyfully because just as he performed wondrous acts against the Egyptians, just as he parted the Red Sea, just as he fed and watered his people miraculously, just as he stopped up the Jordan River, and just as he's about to tumble Jericho to the ground, he has proven to each and every one of you time and again, if you would just spend time thinking about it in your minds, just how trustworthy he is. Why do we fail to obey the Lord? Because we don't remember him. Because we don't remember. The Lord has given us in this chapter a concept that we can lay a hold of. That we, like the Israelites, ought to lay up for ourselves records of his kindness and goodness. In the big things in life, the high points and the successes, and even the little things in life. But most especially at our lowest points of life, when he brings us through them. And our faith is strengthened and increased. Life is like walking a journey down a long trail and it has many mountains and valleys. And sometimes the thicket around you is so tight that you can't even see the light of day. And you feel like you're crawling on your hands and knees. But eventually you come through it. You break through the thicket. And what you do is you turn around and behind you on the horizon you just see little piles of stones everywhere. Little piles of stones reminding you that you're on the right trail, that God is still faithful, and look at all the things he's done for you thus far. He who did not withhold his own son from us, how could he not therefore give us every good thing? God is worth obeying because of his great might. So what has he done for you, Christian? What has he done for this church? You said you've been worshiping here for about five years in this building, a couple years in this building. Used to be in rented space. New members joining at a regular rate. 
even being in a transient town like Fayetteville where men and women are PCS'd across the country every couple of years, still bringing good and godly people into this congregation to serve and to lead, having a pastor and elders who love God and love his word and esteem the ordinary means of grace for salvation and growth in faith. God has done amazing things for you here individually and as a church. And we need, you need and I need, seasons of remembrance. And that ought to encourage us to live obedient lives. But remembrance and obedience is not just for us. It's not just for you and for me. It's not just for this church or for the church I come from. Rather, it is for, our, it is for future generations of believers that they too might have confidence in God. This is the idea of repeating the cycle of remembering and obeying God. In the last section of this chapter 4, the people came out of the Jordan on the 10th day and they encamped at Gilgal. And those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up. And he said to the people of Israel, repeating what we read back in verses 6 and 7, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the, pay attention to the pronouns here. Martin Luther said, salvation is found in the pronouns. For the Lord, your God, my son, dried, uh, uh, the Lord, your God, dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over. Oh my. This is generations to come. Dried up these waters for you. Boy, if this isn't a text that emphasizes the covenant relationship that God enters into with families, I don't know what it is. That your children and their children and their children are a part of the you for whom God stopped up the Jordan River. That all together his covenant people might be in the land that he had promised them. That the Lord your God dried up the waters that you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea which he dried up for us until we passed over. You see, back at the Red Sea, those who were initially brought into covenant relationship with God, you might, you might consider them like the families first Christian parents. God dried up the Red Sea for us that he might dry up the Jordan River for all of our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren that together as a covenant family we might come into his promised land. This idea of remembering, of recounting, of obeying God is for the sake of our children's faith and their confidence in the Lord. God intended these stones to be used as a way that future children would look back on the past faithfulness of God to their parents and their great-grandparents, and they would know that he would continue to be faithful to them in the future. Because God is an unchanging God. So you children here whose parents believe by faith in the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, that is available to you. And as you witness them walk in faithfulness with God, as you see their love for Jesus Christ, their weekly worship of him in corporate worship, and their daily fellowship with God in family worship, this is an opportunity for you to know just how important and mighty and great God is. And parents, I say this to myself before I say it to anyone else. If we are not telling our children who God is and what he has done for us, we are giving them an anemic diet of Christian faith. It's our responsibility as parents 
as fathers and mothers, as aunts and uncles, as older siblings, as brothers and sisters and friends, to share with those younger people in and amongst this fellowship who God is and what he's done. There are in this room maybe 50 people, which means there are 50 experiences of God's saving work in your life. And the children that you will have and that you will encounter and that are in this room right now need to know that some of you walked away from the church and then came back after many, many years and God remained faithful. Some of them need to know that it's okay to grow up and never know a day when you didn't believe that Jesus Christ was your Lord and Savior. And that's fantastic. Some of these children need to know that they're going to struggle with sins that are going to crush their hearts and that are going to hurt their parents and that are going to ruin friendships. And you went through that same thing, but look where God has brought you now today to this place to sit under the preaching of his word and to worship him in spirit and in truth. And these children need your retelling of God's faithfulness in your life. And so do my children. And frankly, so do I. Because life is hard, and we live in a fallen world. And between here and the promised land, there's a whole lot of Jerichos, and there's a whole lot of Ais, and there's a whole lot of Canaanites, and a whole lot of Philistines, and a whole lot of bad guys, and a whole lot of my own sin and stupidity. We need to remember who God is and what he's done. What a marvelous thing God has given us a memory, the ability to know who he is, to remember what he's done. I hope we see then how significant it is for us to recount to our children all the mighty works of God. Family worship should be a priority in the homes of the Christian family. The psalmist tells us that the tents of the righteous overflow with sounds of singing. Not to put too heavy of a burden on you, but family worship ought to include some singing. Because these great songs, this book full of them, Filled with every song from the Psalter, from God's own hymnal, as well as 473 other psalms, songs contained in this book, written to tell just how marvelous and great God is. Written by men who had lost children crossing the Atlantic, and yet they were able to sail over that very same spot and sing from the bottom of their hearts, It is well with my soul. Do your kids know that story? Do they know your testimony? They know who God really is and just how mighty he is. I wonder how many of the young people here know the history of this church, where it came from, and how it ended up here today, how the elders that oversee the care of your souls were elected, and how God brought them into faithful fellowship with him, about your pastor and where he came from, and how the Lord led him into faithfulness to walk before God as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And do you know what? If God withholds his wrath from this earth for a little while longer, everyone here will go the way of all mankind. But there will be children in this place who will know of your faithfulness because of God's faithfulness to you as we recount the history of our Christian faith to one another generation to generation. In the end, I want to leave you with this word. If God is so mighty, then his works ought to be remembered. If God is so mighty, then he ought to be obeyed. If God is so mighty, then we should tell of it 
to our children. And if God is so mighty, then can't we trust him? Can't we trust him no matter what may come? Trust him to guard you and keep you, even as he guarded and kept the people of Israel. Trust him to walk with you, before you, across each Jordan he brings you to. And trust that he'll stop up the waters as you prepare to go through. Let's pray. God in heaven, we do love you and we do trust you. Lord, we believe that you are good and faithful, that you are eternally good and faithful, that you are kind unto your people, that you are good and do good. But sometimes, Lord, we fail to believe. Help our unbelief, we pray, this evening. I pray for the parents in this church, Lord, that you would renew in them a zeal for spending time together with their children in worship. For the couples here, who have no children, that you would encourage them to share back and forth across the the table with each other uh, stories of your faithfulness day in and day out. For the singles who are here, whether they're single by choice or by decree, Lord, or or through terrible circumstances or other, Lord, I pray that they would be uh, surrounded by friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, with whom they might recount your marvelous deeds day by day as well. If nothing else, Lord, your spirit abides in us. And through him we cry out to you in praise and adoration for all that you've done for us, your undeserving children. 